0: Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger.
1: Welcome to Episode 5 of Sleep Talk, our podcast on all things sleep, and as usual, I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Moira Junger.
0: Hello, everyone.
1: So this is going to air in April 2016, and this episode, we're going to be talking about narcolepsy and some of the aspects of living with narcolepsy. In a previous podcast episode 2 of this series, we talked about narcolepsy and some of the more medical aspects of its diagnosis and treatment, but in this episode we'll be talking a little bit more about some of the psychological aspects, uh, with our guest uh, interview being with Jackie Tomlins, someone who has narcolepsy, who's very generously sharing her personal experience. So, Moira, what's been in the news about sleep over the last month or so?
2: Um, I guess because probably the most topical thing is that daylight savings has just ended. Finally. Finally. And, yeah, I could go on a rant about that. It goes on for six months these days. It used to be a summer thing. Now it's really from October till April, Oh, you know, maybe five and a half months. So, obviously, the days are getting shorter. There's a lot more darkness. People who are thinking about darkness in relation to their sleep, wake, health, and their maybe their mood mm-hmm. need to start thinking about getting out there. Their light, lights, their light boxes, or some kind of light device that they use, or, or maximising the natural daylight that we still do have. It's important for people to remember the April, May, June. This is obviously speaking from we're in Melbourne, Australia, and they're our darkest months, like leading up to the winter solstice and June twenty one, and July and August are so the, the depths of our winter, such as it is. Like we have a fairly mild winter, but it's much colder then. But it's actually a lot more light, mm-hmm. so people need to really um, be grateful, I guess, or optimistic that oh, you know, once I get past June twenty one, that's the that's the, the Shortest day, and then, yep. and it gets lighter and and more optimistic towards you know towards the summer months.
1: Yeah, and that relationship between mood, light, sleep, you know, it's still you know the, definitely the basic science is there, and you and I working in the field, you know, very comfortable using light mm-hmm. as part of our sort of tools for managing mood. And I think in the next few years it'll be a bit more mainstream in some of the mental health areas, recognising yeah. the importance of light. Oh, absolutely.
2: Mood. Yeah, I look forward to that. I think we all know anecdotally, don't we, how much better we feel when we're getting lots of um, natural light and, mm-hmm. and sunshine. And, you know, on holidays, for instance, a long part, part of it is, I think, that when you feel much better is because you've just been outside more, getting yep. lots of lots more light. But, yeah, there's lots, lots more to discuss and to learn about that. What, what's been happening in terms of social media and always interested to hear what you've been doing on Sleep Hub?
1: Well, we've had a couple of clients that we've been seeing with problems with eating during sleep. And so mm. I've written a blog post about that that's on Sleep Hub mm. and also put it on Huffington Post because I think that's actually an important topic to um, put out a bit more broadly. Yeah. People who do what are considered... Unusual things during sleep often get ridiculed, and this is the type of thing that often gets a bit ridiculed in the media. Yeah. But one in twenty people with insomnia actually get uncontrollable eating during sleep. So mm. lots of studies showing that. Yeah. And other sleep disorders, people get it too.
2: So during sleep, as in they are asleep or they wake up to sleep or a bit of both? Both forms. I wake up to eat, I mean. Yeah, yeah. So, so both forms. Yeah. It seems
1: to be in a given individual it's going to be one form or the other. Mm. So for some people it's a bit like sleepwalking. They have yeah. no recollection except yeah. they go to the kitchen, there's a big mess and things they've eaten. Yeah. And others it's a sense of an insatiable sort of hunger and craving for carbohydrates and I just mm. they feel like they just couldn't get back to sleep until they've had some
2: sort mm. of... And oh, you, oh, I yeah. Know. I mean, we've seen, we see that quite a bit, really, don't we? Yeah. It's not, not that unusual. Have you had lots of response, like lots of people talking about it?
1: Yeah, so mm. a bit of both. Mm. So definitely it's something that's engaging because mm. people are interested in that. It's, hey, here's a weird and wacky thing that happens during sleep but it's trying to word it and get the comments so that people understand well you might think it sounds a bit funny and a bit mm. weird and wacky but for people who have it it's actually a real problem and yeah. causes real concern for them.
2: And you don't want to um, be too alarming as well really absolutely. I guess. Absolutely. Well, or people who don't have it think they might about to develop it or something like that but yeah. you know it's a delicate balance all the time isn't
1: it? Yeah absolutely. So our topic for this month is talking about narcolepsy and living with narcolepsy and some of the psychosocial aspects of narcolepsy. As we've discussed previously, narcolepsy is a neurological condition and one form of narcolepsy, the form where people have cataplexy, we understand the biology of that and that's where people have an acquired deficiency of the neurotransmitter orexin and that loss of orexin results in both feeling sleepy during the day as well as problems with muscle control and a symptom such as cataplexy. There's also another subtype of narcolepsy called narcolepsy without cataplexy or some people call that type 2 narcolepsy. We understand the biology of that a lot less well. We don't know the exact neurotransmitters involved in that form of narcolepsy but often people have very similar symptoms to those with cataplexy um, with the exception of the Cataplexy symptoms. And people with narcolepsy face a lot of challenges. It can be a very difficult. Uh, thing to live with, as you'll hear from Jackie as she discusses her own personal experience, in part because medications are only partly effective, and also in part because it has a significant impact and can really change people's expectations about what they're able to do and how they're able to manage, particularly for people that are fiercely independent, can make them feel like they need to rely a lot more on others around them and their social supports. So we had a mm-hmm. chance to talk with Jackie Tomlins and, of course, ourselves. Uh, and discuss some of the psychosocial aspects uh, with narcolepsy. So welcome, Jackie, and welcome to helping us out and helping people get a better understanding of the impact of narcolepsy. So do you want to start us off and talk us through some of the ways narcolepsy impacts on your day-to-day life?
0: Yeah, certainly I can do that. So for me, the narcolepsy kicks in about three times a day, I suppose, and uh, there's a close, close correlation with breakfast, lunch and dinner. So I first start to experience it um, in the beginning of the day. And people are often surprised at that because they still think it equates to being tired or fatigued, which, of course, it it isn't. So for me, that starts with a bit of a a pressure in my head. And then I start to feel quite sleepy. Um, I don't normally sleep during the morning. So I've got three young children. And obviously, for anybody who has kids, you know, that's a very busy time of the day. Uh, what I normally do is I go for a walk as soon as the kids are out of the door and that's, uh, that helps me to manage that first um, episode. In the middle of the day, I generally feel it again and that's quite a strong uh, a strong attack, um, nap, whatever you like to call it, and I do generally sleep for 20 minutes, half an hour in the middle of the day. And then towards the end of the day, again, once the kids uh, get home from school, it starts to kick in again and um and i feel it then as well so during those sort of episodes or periods um how does it feel it really feels like if i could lie down i would be asleep in a nanosecond in between that my energy levels vary and um sometimes in the morning they could be quite good um and in the afternoon less good and in the evening they're pretty disastrous. So by the time I get to, um, after after dinner and I've put the kids down, by about 8 o'clock I'm not good for anything and I generally try to avoid even uh, having a phone call or doing anything that involves any kind of uh, physical or intellectual effort. Um, perhaps one of the closest ways that I can sort of, the best ways I can describe it for someone who doesn't have it is the feeling of jet lag if you've just been on a a huge trip overseas and you get home and you're trying to stay awake to adjust your sleeping and that sense that you might be sitting at your desk or or doing your shopping and you just feel like you desperately desperately want to go to sleep but you're trying to keep awake Um, and for me I get that perhaps two or three times a day and I think another comparison that some people might um, understand is that first sort of six to 12 months when you have a newborn baby and you're chronically sleep deprived and you just want to sleep all the time. And um, again, that's another way of understanding it.
1: So I had someone ask me a question the other day and they told me that their GP said they couldn't have narcolepsy because they didn't mm. fall asleep mid-conversation, uncontrollably and sort of mm. drop to the ground. Yeah. then and there. What, does the sleepiness feel like that or does it feel different to that?
0: No, it it doesn't feel like that. And I think that is probably the most common misconception that people have about narcolepsy, that they think you're going to fall asleep in the middle of the sentence. And I think that's from various movies, TV shows, um, that have portrayed that as part of what narcolepsy is. And I think perhaps there are some people for whom that is the case, but the vast majority are not. So, for me, I can roughly predict, as I've said those three times of the day, when it's going to happen, um, but not completely. And I feel like I have some notice. Um, So, it might be that I kind of get a feeling and I think, okay, here I've got about 20 minutes. Um, And if I'm at home, that's great. Um, If I am somewhere else, if I'm in Melbourne, in town for the day, or I am at an event or doing anything else, then that's when it becomes quite difficult because I'm conscious of the fact that I have to be somewhere where I can sleep within the next 20 minutes, half an hour.
1: So to give us some real examples, so we're, you know, if you're planning a day out in the city of Melbourne,
0: yeah.
1: what are the places you try and stake out or sort of look for before it, you go? It's
0: quite difficult um, when you think about... Who sleeps in public? Um, People who are drunk or homeless or um, on drugs. There's a a horrible kind of picture of people drinking publicly. And sleeping in public is not safe. So you have to kind of think about where you can sleep. And for me I've, I've experimented with a whole range of different places and some with more and less success. Um, One, for example, very early on, I was in Melbourne Central, which is a big um, shopping centre, and I felt that I really needed to sleep within the next sort of 15, 20 minutes. I assumed that there would be perhaps a first aid room or somewhere where I could lie down, and I went up to the desk, concierge desk, and asked. And I was escorted by a security guard, a very lovely, friendly security guard who carried my bags. And I was expecting to go down one of the little alleyways and into a first aid room. But the uh, security guard took me to a, a display couch, uh, a big blue display couch right in the middle of the shopping center. So there were hundreds of people around. And he just pointed to the d- display couch and I shook my head and lay down and slept because that was my only option. Um, so that was that was one not great, but although the security guard did sit and stayed with me and watched over me for half an hour, which was lovely. Um, some better ones, uh, Melbourne Aquarium, they have a fantastic first aid room and very supportive staff. They were great. Uh, I was at a conference, a three-day conference at the town hall, and that was really tricky, trying to find somewhere in the town hall to sleep, and I ended up going backstage and sneaking down a little sort of corridor where I didn't think I was meant to be and finding some very uncomfortable chairs in a very cold room. Um, That wasn't great. I have had one situation where I was in a in a public place and I slept and um, although I'd got permission to sleep there the person uh, did call an ambulance which was really not a very good experience either.
2: Um, Jackie, it'd be good to talk to people about with that experience when you, you, are woken and they got an ambulance and it was all very embarrassing, really, um, quite disastrous because I remember you telling me about the identity bracelet that you have got made. Yeah. Can you say, nice. say a few things about that?
0: Um, well, when, on that occasion, the, um, the, uh, paramedics, came and um, I I was asleep on a couch and they tried to wake me up and they couldn't and they did all my vital signs Um, and one of the paramedics noticed I was wearing at the time a narcolepsy band. It was just one of those kind of silicon rubber yellow band and he reached over and looked at it and he just sort of uh, dismissed it and said oh there's nothing on that Um, and that did give me an idea about having a medical alert bracelet with some information on and it's no good having just something that says narcolepsy because that doesn't mean anything to anybody. So I actually got something made um, which uh, has some text on it that explains uh, my name, my condition and asks people just to um, to to watch that I'm okay, um, not to try and move me or disturb me and definitely not to call an ambulance unless there is a very uh, pressing need to do so. And it has a phone number on it too. And that has actually made me feel more secure when I'm out and having to sleep somewhere in public.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I've talked about it with some other patients and interestingly their take on things sometimes is I don't want to, particularly if they're young, they don't really want to be people are alert to it. They don't want to sort of share their diagnosis or for fear of judgment or that people, they just want to be normal as much as they can and, no, no, I don't want to have anything like that. And then they might avoid things like um, going to Melbourne Central or in the first place because they're scared of this sort of stuff happening. So I think it's really important that we're talking about this and looking at ways around, um, or the difficulties. There's obviously so many challenges and we can keep talking to you. We've got plenty more to talk about.
1: And I think it's also helpful for friends and family to hear mm. this type of thing because a lot of people who talk to me say, look, you know, I have these difficulties that you've just really nicely mm. outlined, Jackie, um, but I only wish my family could understand it or my friends could really understand mm. it. So trying to tease you out a little bit about that I think should be helpful in, in that sort of regard.
0: Yes, I think it's interesting what you say about that balance between telling people and not. Mm. Um Because for me, it is a bit of a on a need-to-know basis and um, I I don't necessarily like lots of people knowing and it is because I know that they have a package of views in their head um, that are probably wrong and I don't want to be on the receiving end of those. Um, So for me, I am selective about who I tell, but having a few people who know is really, really important. And I do have a few very good close friends who are familiar with the journey and who understand that on any given day or at any particular time, I might not be able to function as well as I can. Um, And so people know that they can't arrange meetings for me to attend at uh, certain times of the day, um, where possible I work from home and people come to me rather than my having to drive there. So there's lots of kind of practical things that can help if people know. So I I think you've got to find a balance there that you're happy with.
1: And some people with narcolepsy get additional symptoms like cataplexy that you, you don't get mm-hmm. and that can cause additional problems for them and often has its own unique set of problems that we won't sort of cover so much. But and then to change tack a little bit for you in terms of a work sense and concentration and attention and family life and how you get on with others, how, how do you find that narcolepsy impacts on you in, in that way? It,
0: it has a huge impact and I think that's the other thing that people don't realise because they think of it as a physical condition and related to sleep and they don't they don't know or understand the other effects that it can have. So for me, probably one of the the huge uh, problems I have to deal with is the short-term memory. And I find that very challenging. And in my house at home, I've got little whiteboards that are uh, all through the house because if if I get a phone call and I'm in one place, by the time I've walked down the other end of the house to write it, I could have forgotten it. So it's to do with developing strategies to manage those sorts of things. Um, I do a lot of work at the computer, a lot of research and writing, and I find that once I start to feel the narcolepsy kick in, I really, really struggle with focus and concentration, and that can be quite challenging. The flip side of that is, though, for me, during the times when I am most awake, Working at the computer or using my brain actually helps too. does keep me awake. Um, one of the things that I also struggled with is reading and I used to read a lot and I find that's really difficult now because I just fall asleep. If I'm sitting down to read a book, I fall asleep. So I tend not to do it. So there's definitely uh, an intellectual component to it. I think also on an emotional level, it's a bit of a roller coaster as well. Um, Not just the whole journey of the narcolepsy from when you're diagnosed, but just on a day-to-day basis. Um, And again, having children, that's also, that can be quite challenging because the kind of things that irritate you about the kids and when they're bickering or they're very demanding or they just get home from school, um, that can be very, very difficult for, for me to deal with. And I have found that... Um, just having uh, sort of a, a much shorter views. I'm quite an even-tempered person generally, always have been, but I find that I'm more snappy with the kids um, and my tolerance and patience is much less. And that's hard because nobody wants to be like that with the kids. One other factor I think that is also really important is your partner, and the person with whom you're in a relationship, because this does have a significant impact on them as well. And for me, in some ways, it was kind of it was quite a relief to actually be diagnosed and to understand the impact that the illness had been having on my relationship. And it's your partner needs to be able to deal with it as well, and they need support. And they need to be able to say some days, this is really crap for me too, and that's very important. Yeah,
2: speaking of that, speaking of partners, what do you think that there is a role for family and carers um, of people with narcolepsy to be given specific support and treatment? Like, should we be offering that, for instance, here?
0: I think there needs to be an acknowledgement that it has an impact on everybody, on partners and family and colleagues too I'm in a position where I work from home and don't really work with colleagues in the same way but if you're in an office environment or in any kind of environment where you have um, people who you work with then you're not being on board for certain times of the day will inevitably have an impact on them but I think critically it is really important for people that are close to you that they have an outlet as well that they are allowed to say, this is really crappy and I don't like the effect it's having on our family, on our relationship, on us. I would prefer it wasn't like this. And I know it's you who's got the illness, but it affects me too. And I think that's really important to acknowledge.
1: And Julie Flygear, who's a narcolepsy advocate from the US, she wrote a really nice article that was very personal actually about um, relationships and dating with narcolepsy and how that can be difficult. You know, she's a bit younger, but at a different stage in life. And then another good person online that writes is uh, Claire Crisp at clairecrisp.com, and I'll put those links in the show notes. But She's the parent of a daughter with narcolepsy and really writes a lot about the impact of narcolepsy on the whole family unit and um, how that has a big, big effect.
0: I think one of the challenges for me has been managing it with my kids and they are 8, 10, and 13, which is actually quite good. I think it would be very, very hard if you've got infants or toddlers, much harder. So I have had to have conversations with my kids about the illness and about the impact that it has had. And I'm very conscious of the fact that I still try to shelter them from it as much as possible. So, and so during the week, they're at school when I sleep and I am uh, try to be as awake and on board as possible when they're around. And even at weekends, When at first, when I used to disappear to sleep for half an hour, they used to get very cranky. Um, and my youngest used to come into the room wherever I was sleeping and wake me up and um, was really very unhappy with it. But over time, they have got used to it. And I, I suppose I put quite a lot of effort into trying to minimise the impact um, of my narcolepsy on them. But that can be quite challenging too.
1: So Moira, you know, Jackie's given us a lot of insights. So with the people you work with narcolepsy, what are some of the approaches that you would take as a psychologist who's working with and supporting people with narcolepsy?
2: I, I see it as any chronic illness. And first of all, try and give people a, um, a time and a place in which they can talk about their fears as well. And and maybe as Jackie was saying, this I'm not very happy about this. And so just, I guess, providing that sort of a, a forum for that in the first instance. My approach is very much that, and including the family wherever possible. Sometimes family members come in as well. My approach is very much not only, I think I find that the people like yourself medical people are, are focused very much on the, the sleepiness side of it, like the medical condition yep. itself. So I don't feel I need to... Sometimes we need to actually f- focus on that as well. It's not going so well. Medication isn't working out. I need to really sh- do scheduled napping and explore the role of napping to, to help with the sleepiness. But very much in addition to that, as Jackie eloquently said, there's the role within the family and the social support is very, very important. So I try to make sure... Uh, a big focus is, is on the the psychosocial aspects, making sure what, what's going on at home, if if or if they're living on their own, who's. Who is providing some kind of support? Friendship groups, employer, etc. And there is a big variety within people who don't want to tell people their issues. Some people, yep. some employers don't know at all. Some other people say, "I would really like to actually. I want them to know so I can get some kind of flexibility and some understanding." I guess my yeah, my approach is not one size fits all, absolutely. For sure. <laughs> and we're talking about Jackie today, but as as we know, there's a whole range of different types of presentations within narcolepsy. There's uh, a high, very high degree of mental health conditions within narcolepsy that. Uh, are clearly related to the narcolepsy, often in a um, well, bi-directional di- bi- sort of nature, really, in terms of cause and effect within the narcolepsy. So very much standard treatment for as a psychologist with anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, there is a high suicidality kind of um, themes within narcolepsy as well. And it's really important to explore and assess and treat that when, when appropriate, a range of other things. Can you think of anything else that I've missed
0: out? Yeah, on? so
1: something I'm going to actually tease Jackie out mm. uh, out about is... So outside of the sort of social support of immediate family and maybe a psychologist like Moira, what about peer-to-peer support or, you know, talking to other people with narcolepsy or online support? You know, where do you think the role of that is?
0: I think that's really important and that is tricky too because there are not many people, I don't know the numbers, but uh, you don't commonly um, meet people with narcolepsy Even if I think if you compare it to something like cancer or somebody going through chemotherapy, um, I would know lots of people who have had that experience. So I have in the last two years met in person one person who has narcolepsy and that was organised through Moira and the clinic, uh, which was a great uh, experience and a really good positive conversation to have. I think it is really important and I think the online space uh, can offer uh, a huge amount in this regard, and so for me, there is a uh, a Facebook page where there are um, a number of people who have narcolepsy and who have a whole range of different um, symptoms and experiences. But that's really useful for me, and I uh, occasionally post on there, but I often read p- other people's experiences. And that can be, you know, there is something about knowing that there's another person out there who is going through the same thing that is comforting and quite uh, supportive. And there's also sometimes, it's also good when you think, well, actually, my situation isn't anywhere near as bad as that. And, uh, you know, I haven't lost my job or my uh, relationship hasn't broken down. And that's, you know, kind of awful, but you do sort of feel that as well. So, that online support, I think, has been uh, for me has been really important, and it, and it's because again, so little is known about the condition that um, having other people who understand it is really important.
1: Yeah, exactly. And whilst we understand the biology of narcolepsy with cataplexy, narcolepsy with cataplexies a sorry, without cataplexies are. You know, we we much less understand the biology. Really, the biology just tracks to some of the symptoms, but it doesn't really translate well to the impact. And I think that's what you've really given us a good insight into, is how it can impact on people.
2: Oh, well, just thinking about the impact, um, I think in terms of the major sort of psychological impact, I think, like with many illnesses, is that adjustment to illness and adjustment to the the new you the the new sort of sense of self and what does that mean and, and the inevitable comparisons to the what we call the pre-morbid self, like before you had the condition. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would be pretty, a good idea to maybe tease that out a little bit. That'd yeah, a mean, really that would be a really interesting the time, point. The,
0: the pre-diagnosis me. Um, and I think for me that was probably the biggest challenge has been managing the difference between how I was before and how I am now. And I think I, you know, my mum has this expression about um, if you want something done, Jackie, ask a busy person. And I had that all the time when I was growing up. And I am, was that busy person. And I have always been involved in a lot of projects. I do a lot of volunteer work. I'm involved in the community. I've got three kids and a partner and a job. And, um, uh, yeah, I'm a kind of high functioning uh do as much as I can in a day kind of a person a type personality and the the diagnosis just um was like just kind of knocked me for six um, and my my sense of self and my uh my own sense of identity and of you know my purpose in life if you like was uh fundamentally challenged by this condition uh, and still is and two years into my diagnosis that's something that I still find very very challenging to deal with because i I'm not willing able uh, keen on the idea of um, of giving that all up um, so that's an ongoing daily challenge of balancing this image of myself um, that I had before I was diagnosed and what I can realistically um, do um, now that I have this
1: illness. Thanks very much for your generosity in sharing those insights with us, Jackie. And I think that helps uh, people get a much clearer idea of some of the impact that narcolepsy can have. And hopefully for my colleagues that are often more medically focused can help us not be so focused on just you know, medications that'll, yeah. that'll sort things out, but be a bit more cognizant of some of the other aspects and also help people feel a bit more open to seeing someone like Moira in a psychologist sort of role or seeking out peer support to look for extra support.
2: Yeah, I think it's really... I'm so grateful to you, Jackie, for your for coming in to speak with us and your generosity and being an advocate, really, for people with narcolepsy. And there's a lot more we need to learn. There's a lot more I think we could be doing better and differently too as, a, as, a, as, a, as health professionals. And I think it's going to be guided by... The likes of yourself and and all the all our all our patients really you learn something new all the time.
0: For me, I think there has definitely been two strands of dealing with this, and one is the medication, which has been really really important, but. The other strand has been everything that isn't the medication and primarily that's been um, seeing a psychologist who understands narcolepsy and I think that's critical and for me personally that was a lifesaver. And also just looking at all those other lifestyle type things um, and your stress levels, um, exercise, diet um, and the, the kind of things that you think about when you're trying to manage living a healthy life and those will come to play those will come into play as well so there's definitely both sides of it the medication and everything else
1: great thanks for those insights jackie so if you want to get more information on narcolepsy, uh, there is a specific narcolepsy page on Sleep Hub with a number of posts and information and interviews on narcolepsy. There's also a previous podcast, episode two of this series, where we talk about narcolepsy. The Stanford Center for Narcolepsy has good information on their research around narcolepsy. And Julie Flyge is a passionate advocate of, uh, around narcolepsy and sleep. And there's good information about narcolepsy both in her blog, and I'll put the link in the show notes, and her book, which I reckon is a great read for anyone uh, who's got a diagnosis of narcolepsy or their friends and family. In terms of peer support, uh, there are Facebook groups such as Narcolepsy Support Australia's uh, Facebook group and the Narcolepsy Network was a US-based peer support network and network for uh, people with narcolepsy. So now it's time for our clinical pearl or tip of the month where we try and give some insights into some clinical things that may be helpful. So, Moira, what's your tip for the month?
2: Um, Well, I think that it links very closely with what we've just been talking about, what Jackie was talking about, what we, you know, sort of our post-interview discussions. And the theme really is, for me, is the importance of a team approach. Mm -hmm. And it's something that sometimes can just be a bit jargonistic or a bit of rhetoric almost, but it's actually, it is so essential for people to not try and handle something as complex and as chronic as narcolepsy on their own. Mm That's both from the perspective of, of a person suffering from this illness mm-hmm. or you know, condition. But also maybe, you know, the health practitioners who have someone with narcolepsy, to not feel or think that they can handle all aspects of it, like the psychological, the social, the biological, yeah. all on their own. Because yeah. you do need that team approach. It's it's you know, it's so distressing. So I think that yeah, you know, my clinical pearl is to build your team mm-hmm. and that's both from the perspective of, of the patient's perspective mm-hmm build their team around them because we know social support is the critical thing. Yep. And that social support can be from the good relationships with their practitioners, mm-hmm. but also from the perspective of the practitioners, like build your team around you. Yep. And that's not only for narcolepsy. It's any sort of chronic condition, any, any, even acute postoperatively. You know, you don't see many surgeons that don't enlist the help of nurses and physios and the, and the like. You know, you yeah. need to have your team around you, both with, you know, acute and chronic conditions.
1: Yeah, I really agree with that, Moira, And, you know, working as part of a team, I, I can really, much more confident that we can deliver a broader and better care rather than uh, trying to operate as a sole practitioner or you know, trying to cover all bases as an individual healthcare provider. So here we highlight some picks of the month and things that we've really noticed over the last month that have caught our eye. The so Moira, what's caught your eye this month?
2: Oh, well, it's been around since last November, but I'm again, slow on the uptake. <laughs> just noticed it recently, but it's really resonated with me. It's a TED talk that just goes for 12 minutes and it's done by uh, a guy called Robert Wadinger. He's from Harvard Mm -hmm. and it's under the Harvard Beacon Street series called um, What Makes a Good Life and Lessons from the Longest Study on Happiness. And it doesn't relate directly to narcolepsy for sure. It's actually a general thing about what makes a good life and they looked at these groups of people, young men in fact, that were um, living in Boston uh, from about, like I think 1938 or so, a long time, 75 years ago or so, from the from when he did this talk, uh, they looked at long-term predictors of, of just a whole range of stuff to do with their, you know, their education level, their their money, their family, etc. And so, to summarise, and a bit of a spoiler alert mm-hmm. <laughs> for those that might look at this, is that the the gist of it all is that the best predictor of a good, healthy life. Is not what you might think. You know, mm-hmm. it's actually good, strong relationships, mm-hmm. and so that's I like that too. I want people to, if you're interested in looking at that, you know, having a listen to that. I think it, it just works really well with what we we're just saying about social supports within yeah. something like narcolepsy as well. Yeah. Like that, is, it's so key. It's so important. Like to have the good relationships will actually protect your health, or there will at least, you know, enhance it a bit when things go awry.
1: Yeah, great tip. Thanks, Moira.
2: What about you? What have you... What's the pick of your month? What's took taking your eye?
1: Well, it does show what a, bit, what a geek I am about <laughs> sleep. Uh, but it's a book by Evan Thompson, who's the Professor of Philosophy from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And the book's called Waking, Dreaming, Being. And Evan really writes about dreaming, consciousness, how that relates to a lot of Eastern philosophy, um, including Buddhism. You know, my own experiences working in India and some of the um, ancient Indian traditions and um, how they relate to their descriptions of consciousness and dreaming really resonated with a lot of what Evan was writing about. You know, I've got a personal fascination with how dreaming is conceptualised and thought of in different cultures and how it has been uh, historically. Uh, so, yeah, even though this book's pretty geeky, yeah, you know, I loved it. It was yeah, fant- fantastic. Great.
2: So it's accessible, do you think, to the general... Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's not too technical. Yeah. So I've read some other dream books which are quite, yeah, <laughs> quite yeah, technical. Yeah, they can be quite
2: esoteric and technical. and yeah. Fantastic. So is that recent or was you, just, you discovered it recently? Has it just been put out in the last maybe uh, year no, or six it's, or?
1: Yeah, it's out in the last couple of years yeah. and it, but it's a recent discovery um, mm. from me mm. and just a chance meeting with someone else who's done a lot of research in dreaming and that was their uh, supervisor and recommended that Book. Oh, fantastic! Um, and so we will have to do an episode on dreaming. Definitely,
2: and, uh, do, definitely. Do
1: some interviews, but yeah, I really enjoyed that mm-hmm. book. And if you're interested in dreaming and consciousness and some of the cultural aspects around sort of sleep and dreaming, yeah, it's a really good read.
2: Great! I think I might borrow your copy.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, thanks for joining us for this episode of Sleep Talk. Uh, join us next month where we'll be talking about sleep in new parents and aiming to talk to people who do research in the area of um, parenting and the impacts of uh, sleep uh, in new parents, uh, and also obviously our own personal experience about uh, being parents and the troubles with sleep uh, involved in being uh, new parents. Feel free to send us your comments uh, about the podcast at podcast at sleephub.com.au via uh, email. And if you like the podcast, review us on iTunes because reviews get us up higher on iTunes and help more people get the message about sleep. See you next month. Thank you. See ya.